Hello? Hello. That's a bit much. Hello? We're going to get started now. Hello. Thank you all for coming. I'm Eric Jaffe. I'm the uh, chairman of the Free Speech and Election Law Practice Group, I think. I am? Yes. That's that's what I am. Um, That's the practice group hosting these election law series, as the name might make you guess. Um, Today we're going to be dealing with, uh, I think it's the fourth uh, lecture in our series on uh, voting fraud. Our guests today are um, Mr. Hans von Spakovsky. I don't want to mess his name up. He's a commissioner on the Federal Elections Commission. Um, Hans has uh, had a distinguished career in this area, uh, dealing with um, numerous election-related positions and serving on a variety of election boards and uh, commissions and associations in Georgia where he dealt with these kinds of issues regularly. He now obviously deals with them at some length in his current position um, in dealing with challenges to these things. Um, Hans was a a private lawyer before he started his governmental practice, both uh, in-house in the legal department and in in private practice. He graduated from Vanderbilt uh, Law School in 84, and before that from MIT in 81. Um, So quite talented, quite smart, and uh, well-versed. Responding to Hans's paper will be uh, Ray Martinez III. He's a just recently former commissioner of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, which, as many of you probably know, sort of deals with coordinating and addressing problems arising under... uh, voting rights legislation, including things like the Help America Vote Act. Um, Mr. Martinez uh, served on the commission, I believe, uh, for four years. Is that right? Four years? Uh, Twelve years. My, my apologies. Um, prior to uh, that, uh, and prior, in fact, to becoming a lawyer, he was the deputy assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs at the White House under President Bill Clinton, where he dealt with a variety of issues, including immigration-related issues, I believe, and border-related issues. Um, and uh, then after doing that, but before, obviously, going on to the Election uh, Assistance Commission, he uh, received his law degree from the Houston Law Center and his bachelor's degree from Southwestern University. Um, we're going to have a good paper today. It deals with issues on uh, voter fraud, which is obviously much in the news these days, uh, with some recent requirements for photo IDs, some of them which have been struck down, some of them which have at least been temporarily upheld as applied to some of the primaries. Um, I think we'll have some good questions and hopefully some good answers as to whether or not voter fraud is in fact a problem, whether dead people voting really matters in a democracy. Um, presumably they do a good job, or better than the live ones. Um, also, presumably we have some answers to what the effect of uh, voter fraud is on elections, whether it in fact is likely to skew elections, uh, and whether certain anti-fraud measures are likely to solve those problems, whether voter IDs can in fact uh, reduce the instances of fraud or just shift it to a different direction, uh, whether those kinds of things like photo IDs will, in fact, discourage turnout from some of the, um, let's say, poorer or or more easily dissuaded voters in the population who might find it too much of a hassle or too difficult, in fact, uh, not not just a hassle, but potentially uh, short-term impossible to get the proper ID. Uh, These questions and more, I'm sure, will be answered in the presentation of the paper by by Commissioner von Spakovsky. Hans. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, well, I've only got 20 minutes to talk, which is uh, not a lot. So my wife told me when she looked at my 20-page paper that I was going to have to talk really fast, uh, which actually reminds me of a quick story I'll tell you. Uh, you know, Hubert Humphrey was famed for being one of the fastest-talking senators in Washington, and apparently Barry Goldwater once said of him that uh, listening to him talk was like trying to read uh, Playboy with your wife turning the pages. <laughs> 
Uh, I'm going to try to summarize this paper in, in 20 minutes, and then my friend Commissioner Martinez is, is going to critique it. Uh, I, I believe voter fraud is a well-documented problem in the United States. Uh, if you want to read about specific incidents, you know, I'd advise you to get Larry Sabato's book about it that he wrote a couple of years ago, uh, Dirty Little Secrets. Uh, there's a person sitting at my table here, John Fund, who wrote a book last year on stealing elections, which also has a lot of information on that. And there's a new book out called uh, How Voter Fraud Threatens Our – I'm sorry, uh, Deliver the Vote, A History of Election Fraud in American Political Tradition from 1742 to 2004, which also lists lots of incidents about this. Um, in the 2004 election, there were thousands of fraudulent voter registration forms uh, submitted in a dozen states around the country. Uh, these are all a possible source of fraudulent votes, particularly when they are not caught by election officials. Uh, an example of how that can happen is there's a lawsuit going on in New Mexico by uh, a voter who went to his polling place to vote and was told he couldn't vote because someone had already voted in his place. Uh, in 2000, a review by two news organizations in Atlanta where they compared the list of registered voters and people who had voted over the previous 20 years in the state discovered that there were almost 5,500 dead voters who had actually voted in elections in Georgia, sometimes on multiple occasions. Uh, investigations by the Milwaukee uh, Journal Sentinel and a joint task force in Milwaukee that was composed of state officials, local officials, and the U.S. Attorney's Office also found thousands of suspicious votes in the 2004 election, a state that John Kerry won by only a little over 11,000 votes. They showed that there were at least 4,500 more votes cast in Milwaukee than uh, people listed as having voted. And they also found instances of suspected double voting, voting under fictitious names, and voting in the names of deceased voters. Uh, let me, I want to read you a quote from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel because they noted that some of this voter fraud could have been for prevented through photo identification since the task force had noted, quote, Cases of persons voting in the name of a dead person or someone else, persons listed as voting who said they did not vote, people who registered and voted with identities and addresses that cannot in any way be linked to a real person. Now, a growing and related problem to that is the increasing number of uh, non-citizens, both legal and illegal, who are registering and voting in American elections. In the last four years, the Department of Justice uh, has prosecuted and convicted over a dozen people just in the southern part of Florida uh, who were not citizens and who voted in elections in Broward, Miami-Dade, St. Lucie, Martin, and Palm Beach County, which is a place we're all very familiar with, including one guy, Rafael Veliquez, who was actually a former candidate for the state legislature even though he wasn't a citizen. Uh, this may seem to be a relatively small number of convictions, but you have to remember the Department of Justice doesn't have any systematic uh, way and is not systematically looking at voter registration lists and comparing them uh, with lists, for, for example, that ICE has, Immigration Naturalization Service, uh, new agency, uh, to try to find this. There are at least a half, one and a half million non-citizens in Florida it would have only taken about 540 of them registering and voting to have changed the results of the election in Florida and changed the results of the presidential election. Uh, 
could that many people vote in one election to make a difference? Well, in the 96 race between Dornan and Sanchez, as you may know, there was an investigation conducted by the House. That race was not overturned in an election that had about 900 vote differential. But the reason it was overturned was because, based on a limited review, the committee only found 740 illegal votes by individuals who were not citizens. There was a 200 vote margin, so the case was not overturned. Uh, it should be kept in mind that the federal government does not cooperate with state election officials when they want to check the citizenship status of someone. And even if they did, they really couldn't provide uh, accurate information because the only thing that ICE has in its computer system is information on individuals who are here legally and have applied for and got, obtained visas and illegal citizens who have been arrested and have gotten into the system. So for the vast number of People who are here illegally are not in the system. They couldn't provide information. And that's another reason why uh, proof of citizenship should be, in my opinion, uh, required of people who are registering to vote. Uh, by the way, providing photo identification was something that was recommended by the bipartisan Carter-Baker Commission on Election Reform, and their recommendation was that the IDs be uh, issued under the Real ID Act of 2005. Uh, you may recall that's the act that was passed by Congress that's going to require states to issue driver's licenses in which they verify the name, address, social security number, and uh, proof, uh, citizenship status of individuals. Now, these laws are uh, opposed by individuals and groups who say that uh, they're going to depress the turnout of voters, particularly minority voters, particularly black voters, and that uh, the problem is not such that we should be required to do that. Well, is, is, that, the tr is that the case? Well, none of the f purely photo ID laws have been in place long enough to see what their effect is going to be, or uh, they've been stopped through a preliminary injunction uh, or other court order from being in place. But... Uh, I decided to take a look at other less restrictive ID requirements because if, if the allegations are correct that uh, individuals who are black, for example, don't have the same uh, access to voter identification documents or if they are intimidated by a request for identification or if they're discriminated against when they have to show ID, then it's possible, of course, that that would have an effect on uh, turnout. Well, in 2002, uh, Congress passed a law that helped give my friend Ray Martinez a job. Well, they passed the Help America Vote Act and created the Election Assistance Commission. And HAVA imposed the first national ID requirement. Now, it's not as strict as the photo ID requirements passed by the state of Georgia. Um, it only applies to first-time voters who register by mail. And rather than a photo ID, they have to provide either a photo ID or a copy of a current utility bill, bank statement, government check, paycheck, or other government document shows the name and address of the voter. But I can tell you that during the debate over this one provision of HAVA, which was a very big bill, this almost stopped the bill in Congress. This was the biggest, I think both sides would agree, this was the biggest issue of debate in the bill. And 
all of the same claims that are being made about photo ID were being made about the HAVA ID requirements, that they would hurt turnout uh, and it would depress, uh, depress the turnout of, of black voters, particularly at the polls. Well, what happened in the 2004 election when these nationwide uh, identification requirements were in place? Uh, we had the biggest turnout in an election since 1968. Uh, we had one of the biggest increases from a prior election since the increase from 1948 to the 1952 election. So it didn't seem to have an effect on turnout across the country. Now, in looking at this, you have to keep in mind and that any figures like this you have to look at kind of with a grain of salt because a lot of things affect turnout everything from local races to what's going on economically. So you can't really get conclusory results from this. But it, it is interesting to look at this to see if you can see any kind of effect. Now, one of the things HAVA did was it said that you know, all the states had to put in the HAVA ID requirement, but they put a specific provision in that said that uh, states could put in a stricter requirement if they wanted to. And that's what has happened. Georgia passed a photo ID requirement. Missouri passed a photo ID requirement. Indiana did also. And Arizona, while not passing a photo ID requirement, they, they did pass a voter identification requirement, uh, they passed a proposition in the 2004 election called Proposition uh, 200, which requires individuals to provide proof of citizenship when they vote. I'm sorry, when they register to vote. Now, before looking at the turnout, I just wanted to point out some figures that are available from the Federal Highway Administration. They keep this big book of highway statistics. And if you look at the numbers that they have for driver's licenses issued all, all across the country, and this is just driver's licenses. It doesn't include IDs issued by uh, state and local governments, by the federal government, by the military, by a lot of employers now have photo ID and uh, so do university systems. But if you look at those numbers, then in 2004, the percentage of the U.S. voting age population with a driver's license was about 91%. If you add in the figure of non-driver's license photo IDs that every state also issues, that's probably about 3 or 4%. So what that tells us, even though we don't have racial data because uh, the highway administration doesn't keep it, is that the number of uh, percentage of the voting age population that doesn't have at least a photo ID issued by their state's DMV is very small. Now, another claim is that uh, this is going to be a problem for elderly Americans. Actually, the highway statistics on that are kind of scary. <laughs> because, for example, people ages 65 to 69, 91% of them have a driver's license. Uh, 70 to 74, 87% of them have a driver's license. And people aged 75 to 79, 82% of them have a driver's license. So a very high percentage of elderly Americans uh, have driver's licenses. All right. What I did is I took a look at four states that had put in less restrictive identification requirements. And what I was trying to look at was what, ha what was the turnout like in those states prior to the election and what was the turnout like 
after that. And you have to keep in mind, again, that you know, turnout varies greatly from state to state across the states. I mean, some states historically have very high turnout. Other states historically have low turnout. It seems to be tied to many cultural and historical factors in the states. And a lot of this information comes from uh, census surveys. The Census Department, every two years, does a survey of uh, voting, and they break it down by race. And you've got to remember this is self-reporting, so obviously there may be inflation in the way people self-report. But the one advantage of that, if you're using the same census reports from, from every two years, is that uh, if people are going to inflate the numbers when they're self-reporting, it's probably going to stay about the same from report to report, and you can compare this across different states. South Carolina's had a photo ID requirement in place for a very long time. They actually eased the law in 1988 by saying that if you didn't have a photo ID issued by the state, uh, you could use the voter registration card that is mailed to you when you go and you register to vote. So you would think that, logically, that if the photo ID law was actually a problem, when they eased the requirement, uh, you would have a big surge in turnout. Uh, that actually wasn't the case uh, in Florida, I'm sorry, in South Carolina when you look at the numbers. Uh, and what you do find in South Carolina is that uh, the, the, the black voting age population there has steadily risen since 1988 to the point where in the 2000 election, uh, the number of blacks voting was actually higher than the number of whites voting in the state. Virginia. Virginia in 1999 put in a voter ID requirement. By the way, the number of people with driver's licenses in the state is 94% of the VAP. It became effective for the 2000 presidential election. The requirement was basically a photo ID, or you could also sign an affidavit attesting uh, to your identity. So what happened in that in that uh, period between the 96 election when the ID requirement was not in place and the 2000 election when the ID requirement was in place. Well, the national turnout across the country increased 2.22 points. Uh, Virginia's overall turnout rate increased 5.46 points. So the turnout in Georgia, I mean in Virginia, statewide went up at twice the rate of the national turnout in that election. Uh, what happened uh, to black turnout? Well, in the 98 congressional election, uh, prior to the ID requirement being in place, black reported turnout was 23.8%. In the 2002 congressional election, after the ID requirement was in place, uh, the black reported turnout was 27.2%. So it went up about 3.5 percentage points. Now, I'm sorry to go through and give you numbers like this. That's kind of boring, but uh, it's important to this particular issue. All right, let's talk about the most, one of the most controversial ones, which is Georgia. Now, Georgia put in a photo ID requirement, but what a lot of people don't realize is that that was actually an amendment to an earlier identification requirement that uh, Georgia had put in what the, in 1997. Uh, what the 2005 law did is it, it reduced the number of acceptable IDs from about 17 the 17 were everything from um, a driver's license to a hunting license 
to one particular form that uh, I remember because it kind of stood out, and that was uh, a, a court order. I think it was something like a court order indicating that you had uh, changed sexes and were changing your name. That was acceptable ID. Anyway, it changed it from 17 to 6. Okay, and the six forms of ID now that you can use are uh, a Georgia driver's license, a a photo ID issued by the state or local government or the federal government, a military ID, a passport, or a tribal ID. So what happened in Georgia when they first put in their ID requirement? Well, it was first effective in the 2000 election. In the 96 election, so before the ID requirement, the black turnout was 45.5%. In the 2000 election, after the ID requirement went in, the black turnout was 51.6%. So after the ID requirement went in, the black turnout went up six points. It went up again in the 2004 election when the HAB ID requirement was also in place to 54.4%. Now, the photo ID law had to be pre-cleared by the Justice Department. I was at the Justice Department at the time, and Obviously, I'm not going to talk about that from anything that went on internally. But what I will quote to you, there was a letter that's available on the department's uh, website. They got an inquiry from Senator Kit Bond of Missouri who wanted to know the reasons why they had pre-cleared the law and not found that there was going to be any kind of effect, discriminatory effect on black voters in the state. And the numbers that they cited in that are very interesting. Uh, it turned out that the Department of Driver Services in Georgia showed that there were 6.4 million photo IDs issued in the state, which is very close to the 6.5 million voting age population predicted by the census. You've got to remember that the voting age population of the census, 6.5 million, includes ineligible voters like about 50,000 prisoners and 228,000 illegal aliens. So if you took all of that out, uh, the number of people with a photo ID is very close to the registered, uh, to the voting age population and is about 2 million more than the number of registered voters in the state, which is four and only 4.5 four million. Now, the Driver Services Department had racial data on about 60% of the people holding driver's licenses in the, in the state. Who do they have the racial data for? Well, they had it for the people who also registered to vote under Motor Voter when they went for the driver's licenses. 28% of the cardholders were black, which was slightly higher than the black percentage of the voting age population in Georgia, indicating that of the people who applied to vote, to register to vote, uh, when they got their driver's license, uh, blacks actually held photo ID at a slightly higher rate than white Georgians. Student IDs issued by the state university system, all the colleges and universities are also acceptable ID. If you looked at the breakdown of students in the state, all of whom are going to have a, a photo ID, it showed that black students represented about 27% of public college students, which was slightly higher than their share of the voting age population of the state. And then finally, the 2000 census data showed that about 20% of black Georgians worked for the government. Uh, only about 14% of whites work for the government. Their government IDs are perfectly acceptable when they go to the polls. So that means that actually blacks had a greater access to government photo IDs through their employment. Now, 
everyone knows, I think, there was a court case filed there. A, a preliminary injunction was, was uh, issued by a judge against the order. And how's my time doing? All right. I'm not going to talk in great detail about the court case because this, this paper is really about turnout. But uh, one of the things everyone should realize is that the judge actually did not issue his temporary restraining order based on the Voting Rights Act. In fact, he, he did not find any discrimination against minority voters in it. He based it on equal protection for the elderly and the poor, despite the fact that uh, if you were an indigent, you could get an ID for free. And he based it on the 24th Amendment. That's the amendment against poll taxes. I don't think, frankly, I think the analysis is flawed, particularly the, the poll tax one. Uh, what's of interest of that is that in a second uh, hearing and in a second order that the judge issued, he actually backed off of the poll tax uh, uh, idea and ruled following an Indiana court decision that the tangential costs associated with getting a photo ID, like the fact that you have to get a birth certificate, does not amount to a poll tax. All right, I'm going to try to go very quickly over over the rest of this. I don't have a lot of time left. But basically, Louisiana in 1997 also put in an ID requirement. And it wasn't a photo ID requirement, uh, but it was an identification requirement with several different things that would uh, qualify. And again, exactly the same thing happened. If you look at the 96 election before the ID requirement went in, and you compare that to the 2000 election after the ID requirement went in, black turnout actually went up in the, in the state by 2.3 uh, points. And in the 2004 election, when the HAV ID requirement was also in, the uh, reported black turnout in the state was 62%, which was five, almost six points above the national reported rate of black turnout. Uh, Alabama put in an ID requirement. Uh, they've had one election under it. Uh, same thing, their uh, effective rate, uh, sorry, the reported rate of blacks voting increased almost seven percentage points after the ID requirement went in. Uh, Indiana put in a photo ID requirement. They've only had one election since then. A newspaper report about the May election said, quote, across Indiana there were no reports of problems caused by the new requirement, with most areas reporting that they did not have to turn away a single voter. The one thing that's interesting about the Indiana case, and the reason it's worth reading, is that uh, the federal judge actually refused to allow the plaintiff's expert analysis to be admitted in court because she found it to be completely unreliable. Uh, the problems with the analysis, basically, actually the words she used were they were utterly incredible and unreliable. Uh, that report tried to compare the voter registration list with the DMV list for the state. They had cleaned up the DMV list to make sure there weren't any duplicates or anything like that. They hadn't done that to the voter registration list. And, in fact, Indiana, I saw recently, just, just uh, entered into a consent decree with uh, the Department of Justice because they hadn't cleaned up their voter registration list in so long that I think the estimate was something like 25% of the names on there were people who were ineligible because they've moved or died, uh, no longer in the state. Uh, 
They compared demographic data from different years without qualifications. They drew inaccurate and illogical conclusions, and they failed to qualify the statistical estimates on socioeconomic data. She, in fact, said that to any extent you could actually rely on the plaintiff's expert report, it hurt their case because it showed that 99% of the voting age population in the state has a photo ID. Uh, she also said, and I think this is an important point, that the co supposedly common sense claim that persons from lower socioeconomic levels will have a harder time obtaining photo ID because they don't drive or own cars or have limited financial ability is not true. To the extent the expert's socioeconomic analysis was accurate, it actually indicated that, quote, voters without photo ID are not significantly more likely to come from low-income segments. Now, I don't have any turnout data on Arizona. Arizona is the one that passed Proposition 200, requires you to provide proof of citizenship to register to vote. The one thing I'll say about it, which I found interesting, was in addition to the normal documents you would expect, which was a driver's license, a birth certificate, uh, tribal uh, documents, the other document you can provide them is, quote, documents or methods of proof that are established pursuant to the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. In other words, the state is saying that the exact same documents that the federal government requires you to provide to get a job and that every employer has to verify that you have to get a job, they will accept those same documents. I think from a litigation standpoint, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to make the claim that the state is being unreasonable by expecting you to provide the same documentation in order to register to vote that the federal government requires you to provide if you're going to get a job. Uh, the Missouri ID law has just been passed. It's just been sued. There are two cases there have been consolidated. Uh, the one thing, again, we don't have turnout numbers, but uh, a expert report was just filed in that case by some interveners put out by two professors from the University of Missouri. And they estimated that the number of eligible voters out of a voting age population of 4.5 million who don't have photo ID issued by uh, Missouri and who aren't residents of a nursing home, because residents of nursing homes are exempt, uh, was only about 19,000 people. And when they took out the ineligible voters out of the voting age population, people who are felons, people who don't meet the residency requirements, as well as applying the historical turnout of voters in Missouri, uh, they concluded that, quote, the upper bound estimate of the number of persons who are eligible and may choose to obtain a new photo ID is only about 8,000 persons. The conclusion of all this is that... Uh, while there's limited value to the turnout figures in states with less restrictive ID, when you, when you look at that, uh, you also look at the access and uh, total number of people that have photo IDs. Uh, I don't believe there's really any evidence to support the idea that requiring photo ID is going to uh, depress turnout of minority voters. And I do think that the history of state and federal prosecution of voter fraud cases and the other, other problems we've seen uh, justify putting them in. Thanks. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm delighted to be here and honored to share the podium with my good friend, uh, Commissioner Von Spakovsky, 
Uh, it's a real honor to be here with my thanks to the Federalist Society. I will try to be brief in my remarks. I know we want to leave some time for Q&A afterwards. I do want to start, Commissioner, by saying that uh, when Congress passed Highway, they did create a job for me, but I had one already. Um, one that I liked, actually. I had my law practice. I had a little solo law practice. My wife did the books. I did the work. Uh, and there are many times during the past two and a half years as a commissioner when I didn't lament, or there are probably many times when I, when I did lament, picking up that darn phone in the spring of 2003 when Senator Daschle's office called and said, would you take this appointment? Uh, and so, uh, but anyway, I had a job, but uh, I took it anyway, and I was honored to be able to serve on the commission for the past two and a half years. One of the benefits, and I'll jump into my, my remarks in a second, one of the benefits of serving on the commission was to get to know uh, state and local election administrators from around uh, the country, like Mr. Secretary here from Secretary Grayson from Kentucky. Good to see you again, sir. Um, and, uh, and others. Uh, and I picked up nice stories uh, about uh, things that happen on Election Day. Of course, sometimes bad things happen, but sometimes humorous things happen as well. And there's one I want to share with you right at the top here, um, which I thought was rather relevant to our discussion, or at least to my sharing the podium with the commissioner. This one's called the roving, rolling, uh, the roving polling place. One set of officials arrived at their rural polling place, an old one-room schoolhouse, only to find that it was no longer available for their use. This did not discourage them, however. They had the voting machine with them in the back of a flatbed truck, and the weather wasn't too bad. Sounds like Kentucky, I think. Uh, uh, and the weather wasn't too bad. So they set up shop in the parking lot. As voters appeared, they were boosted up onto the, be onto the bed of the truck to vote. The day wore on, and after a while, the polling officials realized that many people on their list had already voted. So they decided to take the voting booth to the rest. Off they went, going from farm to farm, tooting the horn on the truck to get the remaining voters out to vote. About this time, a man called the FEC, prior to the EAC being in existence, thankfully, about this time, a man called the FEC complaining that he could not catch up with his polling place. <laughs> This is before Hans was there as well, because Hans would have picked up on this right away. It took FEC officials a while to realize that the man did not mean that he didn't know where to go vote. What he meant is that he literally couldn't chase down the truck that was carrying the voting machine. So uh, I have others, but I'll, I'll spare you uh, the other stories. But, I, but uh, we pick up some good ones around, uh, you know, from around the country. Let me jump into my remarks uh, and to offer a few points of rebuttal, and if I go over my time, just give me the hook and we can do the rest with Q&A. In November of 2000, like millions of other Americans, I sat riveted while watching election officials recount uh, ballots, presidential ballots in Florida. As an attorney, I closely followed the litigation that ensued and ultimately, of course, the decision that was handed down by the Supreme Court. After watching events unfold at that time, back at the end of, the, of 2000, like everyone else I knew, I assumed that the problems were with the technology that was used. That is, if election administration is similar to a three-legged chair, one part technology, one part processes, and one part people, my assumption was that the leg of the chair called technology collapsed in Florida in 2000, and not unexpectedly, confusion ensued. In response, advocates, academics, election officials uh, were summoned to briefings and to hearings and to uh, provide testimony to Congress to try to figure out what went wrong uh, in Florida in 2000. And what was born is what we all know by its acronyms alone now, or by its acronym alone now, as HAVA, or the Help America Vote Act of 2002. The passage of HAVA, however, did not end the debate over how to improve 
election administration. If anything, this debate became even more intense, has become more intense since HAVA passed, both at the federal but especially at the state and local level. And as I observed many times during my tenure on the EAC, this debate has centered around two key components of election administration, the technology we use to capture and count our ballot choices and the processes which govern the fair administration of our elections from cycle to cycle. Now, with regard to the emphasis on technology, this is not unexpected, given the specific financial incentives provided in HAVA for jurisdictions to replace antiquated voting systems and to implement statewide voter registration databases. However, concurrent with this intense focus upon technology is an alternative but equally intense focus upon improving the processes by which we conduct our elections. And by processes, I mean the laws, rules, and regulations meant to ensure the fair administration of our elections. In short, it seems like nearly everyone today, from the mainstream media to the fringes of the blogosphere, John Fund excluded, of course, is talking almost exclusively about the technology and or processes associated with our elections. And yet, and my experience over the last two and a half years tells me, if we take a closer look at the problems that have occurred in the administration of our, of our elections since 2000, what we find are significant and persistent setbacks that have everything to do with the people aspect of election administration. For example, in its 2001 report to Congress, the Bipartisan National Task Force on Election Reform wrote that the problems in the 2000 presidential election were created by, quote, people and not machines. Likewise, according to a study in 2001 by Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project, the largest source of lost votes in the 2000 presidential election was with voter registration problems, which accounted for 1.5 to 3 million lost votes. More recently, numerous newspaper accounts have closely documented the incidence of voting machine malfunctions and other primary season glitches, characterizing these difficulties as, quote, of the human variety. And a report by the Election Science Institute commissioned by Cuyahoga County and released just a few weeks ago found a significant lack of appropriate poll worker training, especially for a jurisdiction that was moving from antiquated voting systems, the punch card systems that they use in Cuyahoga County, to the fancy new touchscreens, and on top of that, add the VVPAT component, which Cuyahoga County, of course, had to do. My, point, my first point of rebuttal, then, is to posit the simple notion that if we want to do something truly effective to improve the confidence of the American public in the outcome of our elections, then I think we should place our collective energies where they are most urgently needed today. And that is greater professional support and training for state and local election officials, including technical expertise to reduce the reliance of jurisdictions on voting system vendors, training efforts and effective recruitment strategies for poll workers, and more extensive voter education initiatives, including the use of information portals via the Internet, like I believe is done in Kentucky, and hotlines to, to allow voters to, to determine polling place location and confirm voter registration status. I am not suggesting that a discussion such as the one today isn't relevant. I am merely suggesting that we must attend to those difficulties which recent experience, including today's newspaper, tells us are much more pressing. My second point of rebuttal, forgive me for this one, Hans, requires me to reluctantly conjure up the tired old refrain of a famous hamburger commercial from the 1980s. Where's the beef? In early 2006, with much fanfare, the Texas Attorney General announced the launching of a statewide initiative to combat voter fraud. As Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott said during the announcement, quote, voter fraud has been an epidemic in Texas for years, 
but it has not been treated as one. End quote. A central feature of the Attorney General's voter fraud program was a training packet designed to educate election officials on how to identify potential voter fraud. Included in the packet was advice that all election documents should be closely examined for fraud, including obvious signs of tampering and the use of unique posted stamps on absentee ballots. The picture illustration provided on the training slide as an example of a suspicious unique stamp was that of an African-American mother holding her child with the phrase, test early for sickle cell, printed on the stamp. Another training slide provided by the Texas Attorney General's office showed a picture of several African-American voters waiting in line to vote at a polling place with a warning on the slide to election officials stating, all voting in, early voting in person, all laws apply. Now, these are not examples that were used some 50 years ago. These are examples that were used a mere five or six months ago in my great home state of Texas. Perhaps most important are the actual numbers of voter fraud cases prosecuted in Texas since the initiative was launched. According to the Attorney General's own press releases, since 2005, the state of Texas has assisted in prosecuting a total of five voter fraud cases. Even in the medical context, a total of five cases hardly merits a case study, much less to be termed an epidemic. In these five cases, a total of 40 ballots are in question, and only in one instance is it alleged that anyone other than a legal qualified voter cast a ballot. Additionally, none of the cases involve impersonation of voters at the polling place. In fact, all of the cases brought and prosecuted involve absentee ballots. In Texas, a strict photo ID law for voters at the polls uh, was uh, introduced but not passed in 2005, and it is all but certain that it will be reintroduced in 2007. In Missouri, which is now the third state in the country to impose a photo ID requirement for voting at the polls, the number of voter fraud cases that have been documented over the last several years failed to justify such a strict remedy, especially in a state that barely three years ago had already passed a documentary voter identification requirement. A report by former Secretary of State Matt Blunt, uh, now Governor Blunt, concerning activities in the city of St. Louis in the 2000 election documented the following cases of voter fraud. 114 alleged votes by convicted felons, 79 voters allegedly registered with vacant lot addresses, 45 people who allegedly voted twice, and 14 who allegedly voted in the name of deceased individuals. In nearly every one of these cases, photo identification at the polls would not have solved the problem. Moreover, even though the U.S. Department of Justice investigated these allegations brought forth in the Blunt Report, no one was convicted of fraud. In fact, no one was even charged with voting fraud. However, in nearly all of the cases detailed by the Blunt Report, the HAVA requirement that statewide uh, voter registration databases be coordinated with felon and death records could go a long way towards solving the problem, in addition to the requirement in HAVA that an applicant's information provided on a registration application, including the applicant's Social Security number or driver's license, be verified for authenticity. One final note regarding Missouri. In 2004, Secretary Blunt himself acknowledged that since 2002, when Missouri implemented a documentary proof of identification requirement, elections in Missouri had been, quote, fraud-free. In Ohio, a statewide survey of each of Ohio's 88 county boards of elections found only four instances of ineligible persons attempting to vote out of a total of 9 million cast in the 2002 and 2004 elections. In Washington State, a study of 2.8 million ballots cast in the 2004 gubernatorial election 
found that only six were cast by individuals who voted twice, and 19 ballots were cast in the name of deceased individuals. And most of those uh, uh, votes, by the way, were cast, or those ballots were cast by absentee ballot. In fact, of the 10 recommendations made to the King County Council by the county's independent task force on election reform, comprised of prominent citizens, election officials, and even the Secretary of State's office in Washington State, not a single recommendation from that task force, which just issued its report this past February, mentions not a single one of the recommendations mentions voter fraud. However, one of the recommendations is to automatically restore the voting rights of convicted felons upon their release from incarceration. Finally, on a national level, the Carter-Baker Commission report noted that since October 2002, federal officials have charged 89 individuals nationwide with casting multiple votes, providing false information about their felony status, buying votes, submitting false voter information, and and voting improperly as a non-citizen. Irrespective of whether 89 cases over the last four years represents extensive voter fraud, I would simply note once again that the vast majority of these incidents would not be prevented by a photo identification requirement. And I'll go briefly here till the end. My third point of rebuttal pertains to the perception of strong public support for photo ID and the linking of photo ID requirements to eroding public confidence. It is certainly true uh, that when the American public is asked to give their opinion regarding the imposition of strict photo identification requirements at the polls, the response is overwhelmingly positive. A national poll, I think by Mr. Fund's newspaper some five months ago, showed that 81% of Americans favor or strongly favor requiring voters to produce photo identification. And yet, in my view, sometimes even conventional wisdom needs a closer look. For example, in the Wall Street Journal NBC News poll taken this past April, respondents were asked their opinion on whether they support or oppose making it mandatory for every person in America to have health insurance. That was the question just underneath the voter ID question. 68% of respondents said yes. However, when one explains that making health insurance mandatory would likely require additional government subsidies for those who cannot afford such coverage, meaning higher taxes for us all, my guess is that support for this question would drop significantly. Likewise, in the same Wall Street Journal poll, eight out of every ten respondents said yes to requiring voters to produce valid photo identification when going to the polls. However, After explaining that at the video store, there is every incentive upon the merchant to produce a successful business transaction. That is, at the video store, they want your money and rarely would ever disenfranchise a consumer. Whereas at the polling place, among partisan or inadequately trained poll workers, there is unfortunately strong incentive to disenfranchise a voter so that a partisan outcome is achieved. Well, in my opinion, I think support would drop considerably for this initiative as well and consider what has occurred in Missouri. After months of public deliberation and publicity regarding the pros and cons of imposing a strict photo identification requirement, polls conducted by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch find significant opposition, including one poll just 10 days ago, which found that 43% of the respondents opposed any photo identification requirements. And I think another 15 or 20% opposed implementing the photo ID law this, this coming November. So, knowing that my time is short, let me conclude. First, the use of anecdotal evidence to support or oppose photo identification. In the 2004 presidential contest, John Kerry won Wisconsin by a mere 11,000 votes. In its September 2005 report, the Carter-Baker Commission supported its call for photo identification in part 
by citing the 2004 Wisconsin presidential election. However, as Professor Spencer Overton has written, anecdotes can be misleading. Professor Overton's research points out that of the nine double voting cases discovered and announced with great fanfare by the Republican, by the Wisconsin Republican Party, the Republican-appointed U.S. attorney found that none of these nine cases involved voter fraud. That is, six of the cases involved clerical errors, and in three cases, the individuals with a similar name but a different date of birth voted in Chicago, Madison, or Minneapolis. Moreover, of the 70,000 ballots examined by a federal state task force, ballots produced, by the way, as a result of Wisconsin's same-day voter registration law, only 100 were deemed questionable, in which people may have voted twice or used false addresses or fake names. As the U.S. Attorney in Wisconsin concluded, quote, we don't see a massive conspiracy to alter the election in Milwaukee one way or the other, end quote. By no means am I suggesting that anecdotal evidence is not useful or that in all cases is wrong. I am suggesting, however, that we must conduct due diligence with regard to the use of such anecdotes, especially when used as a justification for such sweeping policy changes. Regardless, second, regardless of whether the numbers are thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions, photo identification requirements will disenfranchise Americans who are today indisputably, inelig or indisputably eligible voters. While the results of extensive fraud investigations suggest that voter impersonation at the polls occurs at most at a rate of less than 1 in 100,000 votes, credible studies, including one by the Carter Ford Commission on Election Reform, show that photo identification requirements may exclude as many as 20 million eligible voters nationwide. In Missouri, whether the number is 240,000, as Secretary Carnahan suggests, 138,000, as, as the Director of the Department of Revenue, of Revenue has determined, or 20,000, as Commissioner Von Spakovsky asserts today, any of these figures represents an unacceptable number of potentially disenfranchised voters, especially when considering the infrequent occurrence of voter impersonation at the polls. Finally, let me just say that my concluding point is that we have remedies. Uh, HAVA was intended to address some of these issues. Uh, HAVA has provisions in it that require uh, the statewide databases to be linked to death and felony records. Uh, HAVA has a section in, uh, in, in Title III. Uh, in fact, the title of the section is Verification of Information Provided. And HAVA requires that the information provided, whether it's a Social Security number or a date of birth, be verified and matched against records. It's been challenging, and not every database is working as it should. I know that from experience on the EAC but we actually put tools in place that if we give HAVA time to work, ought to go a long way towards addressing some of the important concerns that are raised by, by Commissioner Von Spakovsky. And I'll make one final note, and that is with regard to the EAC. I think the EAC is an important uh, player in this debate, and I think that they should play a role as a neutral arbiter in commissioning research uh, so that we can have empirical studies that are sound, that are peer-reviewed, that are balanced to fully inform us before we go out and make significant policy decisions as is photo identification at the polls. I firmly believe that the data that the commissioner presents today says what it says, and that is in states that have documentary proof of citizenship, three of those four states allow, I'm sorry, documentary proof of ID at the polls, three of those four states that he studies, by the way, allow an affidavit to be signed so that the voter can still vote a regular ballot just by signing an affidavit. 
I have, I have no doubt that the, that the data that he's analyzed says what it says. But to make a leap from documentary proof of, 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 proof of identification requirements to saying that photo identification requirements will not have a detrimental impact upon not just minority voters, but elderly voters, young voters, economically disadvantaged voters, I think is a leap that I'm not willing to take at this time. So with that, I, I, I have nothing but the highest regard for my friend and the commissioner, uh, and, I, and, I, and I do want to say that I think this is very important. As a commissioner on the EAC, I tried very hard to conduct my business through a philosophy of consensus. There has to be some common ground. And I'm honored to be able to come here and talk with you and not talk at you or vice versa because I think this represents what is great about our democracy. So I'm glad to be here. I hope we can continue to engage in these discussions. Uh, and, uh, and I look forward to your questions uh, in a few minutes. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Uh, we'll take questions for the next half hour. I'll take the moderator's privilege and start with my own, and then I will go to the audience. Um, as we discussed uh, during lunch, what always strikes me about these debates <coughs> is the dearth of actual relevant evidence. Uh, so uh, for, for Hans, you, know, you cite the trends in year-to-year uh, -year turnouts without there being any indication what that turnout would have been but for the new voter registration requirements or the new voter ID requirements. Is there any decent control? Uh, we talked about this at lunch. I'm just for the benefit of the audience. Is there any decent control that says, well, sure, there was an uptick in voter participation, but it might have been twice as large but for the requirements? And by the same token, for Commissioner Martinez, um, you say that 20 million potential cases of exclusion without giving any indication of what the potential for that is, whether or not that would be actualized, whether or not it's closer to 8,000 in a practical basis, as Hans suggests, or would be higher. Is there any data from showing how many people are actually turned away due to the lack of proper ID? Um, and, and then in answering those two questions, it struck me that we're talking about several thousand cases of voter fraud per state in one instance, maybe 8,000 cases of exclusion in the last instance Hans gave. Why isn't that a wash? Why isn't this all well within the margin of error with no systematic bias? It's just individuals with similar names or such things. So why do we care? Those are my questions, and then we'll turn to the audience in a minute. You can answer from your seats. All right, well, I guess I'll go first. Well, first of all, um, because we had limited time, I didn't do which something that's actually in the paper, and that is uh, look at the overall turnout trend in the state and compare it to national turnout trends to address your first issue. It maybe it would have gone up even more. And uh, I think when you look at those numbers, you find that uh, the imposition of voter ID requirements in the states that I looked at um, did not change the historical uh, trend and history of voter turnout in each of those particular states. Um, on the issue of is this a small problem or a big problem, I, a couple of things. First of all, I only talked about voter ID for in-precinct, in in-person voting today because that's what the laws have been passed handle. But I will be the first to say, and I said this years ago, uh, I also think 
voter ID is something that ought to be applied to absentee balloting so that similar to what they do in the Help America Vote Act, if you send in an absentee ballot, you need to send in a photocopy of the relevant ID the same way you have to do that right now in the Help America Vote Act because absentee ballot fraud is a is also a, a very big problem. That's why the mayor's race in Miami in 1997 was thrown out. It was because of 5,000 absentee ballots. Uh, as for the size of the problem, uh, one of the problems here is that uh, I have great respect for local election officials. I used to be one, but um, it, it doesn't help them keep them jobs to detect problems. And there isn't really a way in this particular sense to detect these kind of problems, such as impersonations uh, at, at polling places, uh, because there's, no, there's nothing set up to detect it. Um, if you want to know the size of the problem, I would just cite to you that uh, the biggest case that the Department of Justice has ever prosecuted, and I should point out that while the Department of Justice has 40 lawyers, equivalent number of staff, probably about 100 people working in its voting section, who only enforce access to the ballot, which is something they should be doing, uh, under the Voting Rights Act and the other laws like the Help America Vote Act. Uh, would anyone here care to guess how many lawyers they have in the criminal section who are dedicated 100% to prosecuting election crimes? There's one person, and he's sitting at the table right here. The one guy for the entire country. Now, yes, the U.S. attorney's offices around the country can also prosecute these, but they don't have anybody in any of their offices who are dedicated 100% to detecting, investigating, and prosecuting these cases. They do these cases as they get information about it, and that's you know, far and in between. And uh, like I said, the biggest case the Department of Justice ever prosecuted, and it was Craig Donsanto who prosecuted it right here, arose out of the 1982 governor's race in Illinois, a grand jury, they, convict, they arrested, indicted, convicted over 60 people for voter fraud, and the grand jury report, which was a public report, estimated that 100,000 fraudulent ballots had been cast in that election. Okay. Now, as to the Texas issue, I would say again, you don't really have the measures in place to detect this, but I would quote to you testimony of Paul Betancourt, who's the voter registrar in Harris County, Texas, who I, I, I'm sure you know, who just through a very preliminary review, not an extensive review, discovered at least 35 cases uh, in his county of people who, when they checked the registration form, said they were citizens, and it turned out they weren't citizens, including a Brazilian woman who voted at least four times. And the, the, what he said about this, and the reason this was important, was because, quote, we regularly have elections decided by one, two, or just a handful of votes in any one of our more than 400 local government jurisdictions. Now, I'm not going to tell you, I, I'll be the first to tell you, I think the majority of elections in this country are decided without you know, major voter fraud or even minor voter fraud affecting the outcome. But there are a substantial percentage that do. And I, I'm, very, I, I'm just, I'm taken aback a little bit by this idea that, well, because the number of cases is small, that's not a reason to put in this law. And the reason I'm a little taken aback by this is because, uh, you know, we just renewed Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And one of the pieces of evidence that was put in during that re I'm sorry. 
Greg. Let's not have this be a okay. rebuttal. Let's see if we can get to the audience in a minute. No, that's fine. I, I, I'm, I'm here to discuss and debate, so I have uh, no problem. I'll give you the podium back in a second. Um, I'll, I'll make a but couple. I won't. I'm going to give it to the audience. Oh, you're going to give the podium. You got the podium. Okay, now I understand. Uh, well, I'll make a, a, a few quick points. First, if the proposal on the table is to give Craig a hundred more criminal prosecutors to enforce the laws that are on the books today, I'm all for it, Commissioner. Okay. So if, if that's what we're talking about, then that's an entirely different discussion than making the leap that documentary uh, proof of identification at the polls is uh, to photo identification at the polls is not going to have uh, are not going to provide, put an undue burden upon certain segments of our population. I'm not willing to go there. Am I willing to go with giving Craig some more help? Sure. And I, that, I, that I speak from my experiences two and a half years as a commissioner. Uh, and so, th so that's the first thing. Uh, with regard to Paul Bencourt, I think very highly of Paul. He's a friend of mine. I think uh, he does an excellent job as a tax assessor collector and the, and the keeper of voter registration records in Harris County. I testified with him back in June in front of House Administration Committee. And, you know, he was he, two points come, come to mind. The first is he agreed that there's not a lot of sound empirical uh, uh, research and data for us to make uh, these kinds of decisions that we're trying to make by imposing or by uh, 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 trying to pass significant public policy changes as is photo identification. And he also went on to say that he felt that imposing an affirmative obligation upon the voter, as does photo identification requirements, as does citizenship requirements at the point of registration, uh, I won't put words in his mouth, but he, he was troubled by that, and that was from his recorded testimony in the hearing. We, he and I talked about it afterwards as well. I, I, look, I, I don't disagree that, there are, uh, uh, that there's data on both sides which we can continue to uh, talk about and, 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 and use for our particular arguments. I just think that, to me, even a 1,000 possible disenfranchised voters is troubling to me, given that nobody can tell me that there are nothing but sporadic incidents of people trying to impersonate other voters at the polls. And when they do, I hope like heck that Craig Donsanto goes after them. I saw a question right there. We'll come to John after that. It goes back to something that the mentioned briefly, and that is uh, voter roll purges to, to remove people who are ineligible or, or otherwise. Uh, My question goes back to um, purges of voter rolls to try to maintain accurate voter lists. Both HAVA and NVRA impose affirmative obligations on election officials, yet we've seen in at least two instances, one in Washington State and one in Kentucky, where you know, outside groups, and, and in Kentucky, actually, the state attorney general is suing Secretary Grayson um, about purging the voter rolls. And then you've got, you know, you had Indiana had to come to a consent decree with the Department of Justice. DOJ has lawsuits in Missouri. And there are, I think, at least five or six counties in Pennsylvania that have more registered voters than they have citizens of voting age population. And yet here's an opportunity for or, or potential for fraud that just isn't being addressed by election officials because they get threatened, you know, they get threatened with lawsuits every time they try to purge voter rolls. And so I guess the question is, how do you address that to make sure that in the first instance the voter rolls are accurate before you even get to whether or not the person showing up at the poll is who they say they are? Well, I, I, think it's a, I think it is a big problem, quite frankly, and it's something that uh, when I was on the EAC we had um, hearings uh, regarding NVRA. Uh, and um, 
Uh, Sarah Ball Johnson was one of our witnesses to talk about what happens in Kentucky and the burdens that are placed upon uh, local and now state election officials when they have to keep Deadwood on the rolls because of the provisions that are in NVRA. And, and I'll say to you what I've said as a commissioner, and that is we ought to have an honest discussion about what is working and what isn't, quite frankly. I think HAVA represents a step in the right direction that we're trying to electronically – most states don't do this. They don't electronically link the statewide database to felon and death records. They just they have it's 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 a, it's a, they're trying to get to that point. That's what Hava envisions, and I think that's an important step forward uh, for us to start to be, give, provide more integrity to the voter rolls. But is it a problem? I, I can't say that it isn't. Quite frankly, I, I think it is, and we have to figure out what the tools that we can make available to state and local officials to be able to have more lists with greater integrity. I think apropos, by the way, of your point about suits to stop them from actually cleaning up elections, over in one of the next rooms, the Brennan Center is actually holding a seminar on voter fraud. I think it's a workshop on how to help it, um, unlike this one, of course. <laughs> I have a philosophical question. I was very struck by the point that Mr. Martinez Rea made about human error. Mm-hmm. If I had to distill all my months of research for my book, it is this. If you have sloppy systems, they create an environment in which fraud can happen. So the sloppiness and the fraud go together, potentially. The best argument against photo ID laws are that they don't cover the explosion in absentee ballots. The same legislatures that passed these photo ID laws were unwilling to extend those requirements to absentee ballots because absentee ballots are popular. Well, we're moving towards a situation in this country where people are going to move, vote early all the time by absentee ballot. Washington, Oregon are already there. My question is this. Since election officials tell all of us the method of choice for voter fraud is absentee ballots and they're not covered by photo ID laws, is early voting an acceptable alternative? Because early voting does take place under the eyes of government election officials. It's much easier to police. It also provides the convenience and it doesn't have many of the problems, potential pitfalls of absentee voting. Should we perhaps de-emphasize absentee voting and move more to early voting as a way of opening up the ballot access? Well, I think, I think I've made clear I definitely don't like absentee balloting. Um, and uh, I, I think if you're, if you're going to have some kind of form of it, then early voting is, is better because Somebody has to appear in person if they have to show an ID. Um, but I got to tell you, there's two problems with early voting. I mean, first of all, it keeps getting in, coming in because it's so popular. But, you know, the reasons for it to begin with that were pushed by a lot of people was they thought it would um, increase turnout, that it would help turnout. And that, in fact, has turned out not to be true. Uh, the, the Committee for the Study of the American Electorate, Curtis Gann's organization, was very respected, did a study about this. And they discovered that if you looked at states that had put in either no-fault absentee balloting or early voting, uh, it, it actually didn't hurt turnout. It seemed to, uh, to help turnout. It actually seemed to hurt turnout. And the reason was that the people who, are, who vote during early voting times are the people who are going to vote anyway. And it didn't spur people who don't normally vote to, to go vote. Um, the problem that I have with early voting is that the selection of sites for early voting is up to local officials. And I did a paper about this some years ago, and I discovered a case in Texas where a local bond referendum for the schools was put up for a vote, and it lost. 
And so the next time the school board put it up again, they, of course, were putting it up the election. They got to pick where to put the early voting sites. So what did they do? They put all the early voting sites only in schools, and they had uh, long hours during school events that were going on. And what, that, what happened was this time it won, and the margin of victory was from their early voting sites. If you'd counted the votes cast on election day. So they manipulated the outcome of the election by where they placed the early voting sites. And I think that that is a danger, and that's one reason I, I, I don't like it. Can I just say a couple of quick things? Um, I'm sorry to keep going after Texas. No, no, no. I was about to say let's stop picking on Texas. Uh, <laughs> I think I started it, so it's okay. Uh, the, uh, I, I do want to point out, though, that in your paper you have a footnote that, that actually says that you support uh, uh, in, uh, applying photo identification to absentee balloting. So you've said it before, but you also say it in this paper as well. And I, and I agree with that. I think... I mean, I, I applaud that consistency. Unfortunately, Georgia's had two shots at it now, and they still haven't extended the photo ID requirement to absentee ballots. That's just troubling to me. That's troubling. Now, in terms of absentee ballots, no, I don't think I can support that we should trend or, or, or find ways to do away with absentee balloting. I think we should provide the same steps toward uh, preventing fraud and integrity into absentee balloting that we do for, uh, for regular in-person voting, quite frankly. Early voting has been in Texas for 10 years now, since 1995. It was promised to help increase uh, turnout, and John, it hasn't done that. Am I opposed to it? No. I think it's actually quite convenient, and I turn out, I usually vote early myself. Um, uh, so I think it's, a, it's an important tool, um, but I don't think it should be, re- I don't think it should replace absentee balloting. Can I just one? I'll just add one thing to that, and, you know, my job at the FEC now is campaign finance. And I'll tell you, everyone's concerned about the cost of campaigns. Well, I can tell you, early voting greatly increases the cost of campaigns because the vast majority of campaign money is spent right before Election Day in efforts to get out the vote, you know, get get your name uh, into the minds of voters. And... uh, when voting is spread out over a three- or four-week period, you've got to spend that kind of money over that entire period or you're going to miss persuading voters who vote during the early voting period. And it, it increases the cost of campaigns when you have early voting uh, just because you have to do that. Uh, I've got a couple of brief questions for my old boss from the DOJ, Hans. Um, First of all, in the Harris County example that you mentioned, uh, I'd like to ask how you see the photo ID requirement addressing those instances of fraud in particular. And secondly, um, and this follows up on what John Fond and Ray were saying earlier, um, you've written quite eloquently, I think, on the potential for fraud in absentee ballots and that uh, fraud is most likely and most often to occur in absentee ballots. Given that absentee ballots are expressly excluded from the ID requirement, in every state that has passed a restrictive photo ID law so far, Georgia, Indiana, Missouri, don't you have concerns that rather than combating fraud, that the laws actually provide a roadmap for fraud and tell people, if you want to commit fraud, here's the way to do it through absentee ballots, particularly considering the fact that most of the anecdotal evidence we have is from absentee ballots? Um, I'm sorry, Dave. What was the first part of the question again? The Harris County. Oh, the Harris yeah. County thing. Um, well, no, that's a good question, but one of the things that I make clear in, um, in the paper, which I didn't mention because I have a lot of time, is, and, uh, is that the photo ID that I think needs to be required is a photo ID that's qualified under the Real ID Act, okay, of 2005, because the Real ID Act requires that a driver's license, if it's issued, is going to be issued to someone who's provided proof of citizenship. And 
That's made even more important by uh, last year. The state auditor of Utah did a check of their DMV system and found, I think it was like 58,000 driver's licenses issued to uh, illegal aliens and another 37,000 non-driver's license photo IDs issued. And that shows the importance of only allowing photo ID that meets meets that requirement. Um, I I won't disagree. I said absentee ballots are a big source of fraud, but they're not the only source of fraud, as as my friend Craig could well testify from all the uh, prosecutions that he has done. And the fact that they're now requ- that those states like Georgia want to require photo ID at the polls, um, that's just that's the first step they need to take to controlling fraud. I mean, the second step ought to be uh, doing something about absentee ballot fraud, and not making it uh, so easy. So I don't think it provides a roadmap. The people who know how to steal elections uh, already know how to do that uh, through absentee ballots. John Samples, uh, Cato Institute. Uh, we've had a, heard a lot of talk today about data one way or the other, and I wonder if uh, maybe there's another question, maybe another kind of data that's relevant here, uh, and I'd like to get your response to this idea. In the field of campaign finance, um, the justification for limiting and restricting fundamental political rights has included, among other things, corruption and also the appearance of corruption. And the appearance of corruption is something that's largely based on public opinion polls when it comes down to it, and its effects on people's belief and distrust in uh, the government and its legitimacy. And I wonder if that could apply here also. Quite apart from the effects one way or the other, uh, we could really, is it really so odd to think that if 81% of uh, people in polls support IDs, that, in fact, there's a connection here between the appearance of corruption in voter fraud, quite apart from the data, and the fact that a voter ID might increase many people's uh, belief and trust in the government and its legitimacy, and that that those gains might, um, in fact, be uh, worthwhile, whatever the losses are on the other side of the ledger. Excuse me. Well, I'm not willing to make that leap. I understand the question. Um, I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I think that, that, uh, that, as I said during my remarks, the, what troubles me about the polling data is that it looks so compelling. Uh, and yet, when you take a look, I mean, you, now you have one state that is acting. It would be interesting to see if Georgia or Indiana has done any polling about, statewide polling about how, Uh, folks in those states feel about photo ID now that they've gone through some experience and debate, public debate and newspaper articles about the matter. But but I'm troubled if we're going to make significant public policy decisions like the ones that are on the table or the one that's on the table today based upon uh, public opinion. I mean, that that notion troubles me already, but especially when the, the consequences of this decision are so enormous, the potential for disenfranchising millions of voters. Um, and again, I would point to what happened is the example I gave in, in my remarks about Missouri. You've gone through an experience of debating the issue publicly, and a poll comes out uh, uh, by the newspaper uh, that shows support eroding for photo identification once the public is fully informed as to the pros and cons of the particular issue. So I just I think the polling data, while it's compelling at first blush, I think we have to take a much closer look at it, quite frankly. 
Um, my name is Susan Payne. I'm a, I'm a mom and a community activist from Maryland. I'm interested in this issue because how do you address when the photo ID is exactly who the person says they are, but they've fraudulently gotten it through the MVA? And I say this because in Maryland, I'm now documenting my local MVA. Four to 500 applications are being processed a week, and they're all illegal. And I know this because I've had test cases go through the system. I also had a girl from um, Montgomery College not only get a voter registration card when she's illegally here from Mexico, but she was offered a job as a judge to be a bilingual judge at one of the polling places. So when the gentleman on the right says the imposition of photo IDs, if it disenfranchises one voter, it's unacceptable, well, when my vote is basically cast aside because it's up against illegal voting people, and I then am disenfranchised, why aren't you equally as upset about that? I am. So let's prosecute the people who are committing a fraud upon the system. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly in agreement with you. Um, but, again, the remedy that's on the table is photo identification uh, as a means to stop what appears to be, I don't see the, the evidence on the table, what appears to be, at best, infrequent incidents of people uh, uh, impersonating voters at the polls. I mean, we don't go in and I think somebody put this in a paper recently. We don't go and arrest 100,000 people uh, in a block where we think a few criminals exist because we know that we're going to catch them by doing that. I mean, it just, uh, you know, it's, it's troubling to me that that's the direction that we would be going in. And quite frankly, many states, as we now know, are a few have headed in that direction, and about 25 others or 20 others are considering uh, the same steps. I'm troubled by it, ma'am. I mean, I'm just giving you my honest answer. I'm troubled by it. I don't accept the trade-off that, that, that is implied here. So we have so many folks that could be disenfranchised to stop what is, uh, again, at best infrequent occurrences of, imper- of voter impersonation. To me, I'm not willing to accept that trade-off. Well, that's all the time we have. I'd like to thank both of our speakers. Thank you. Also, also I'd like to thank all the, the folks at the Federal Society who helped put this together, who helped get this nice lunch. Thank you all, and uh, please join us for the next one, which should be on election litigation. Thank you.